0: Welcome to the Dietitian Rehab Podcast, where we not only challenge and inspire dietitians to think outside the traditional dogmatic education, training and attitudes for a mind wide open, but also to challenge anyone to think differently about their own health. We'll talk all things food, health and nutrition related as we explore points of view, evidence and strategies for better health that will allow you a fuller understanding of the hot topics that everybody's talking and asking about. Hey everyone, welcome to the show. I'm your host Doug Cook and today's episode is going to be kind of fun for us dietitians and nutritionists and perhaps the medical professionals out there. My guest Eliana and I are going to talk about low-carbohydrate diets in the context of nutritional counseling. So my guest Eliana Witchell, is the founder and chief eating officer of Eat Different RD, her virtual private practice in Ontario. She partners with medical teams such as physicians, nurse practitioners, physician assistants, pharmacists, and other clinicians to help their patients improve health. And where appropriate, Eliana safely prescribes carbohydrate-restricted and reduced dietary approaches with her patients. She has also partnered with a number of organizations to help lead the development of evidence-based resources and webinars for registered dietitians and other health professionals to safely offer food-first approaches designed to reverse or put chronic disease into remission. So without further hesitation, let's get to the show. Eliana, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Doug. I'm so honored to be on here with you.
0: I'm really excited because before we were prepping for this, we were sharing, I can't remember how we found each other, but it's great to chat with like-minded people. Whether you see yourself this way or not, I see you as kind of a thought leader, or at least somebody who's kind of pushing the boundaries in an appropriate way when it comes to practice. So I was really excited to chat with you because a lot of people talk about low carb and keto, but they're not really kind of walking the talk. (laughs) So just before we jump in, can you just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself, your professional background? And I more importantly, your area of practice and the kind of nutritional issues that you deal with?
1: Yeah, sure. So So I am a registered dietitian. And like most of us, I'm focused on patient health outcomes. Now, I want to find a diet that is sustainable for a patient, but also helps them reach the goals that they're trying to reach. And sometimes that's through the food guide. And a lot of times with the patient population that I'm seeing, it's not. I see mostly individuals who are struggling with metabolic syndrome, chronic disease, diabetes, obesity, hypertension. I see other things too. I do see eating disorders. I see a lot of disordered eating, if I can call it that in quotations where people are just preoccupied with food. But I think, and maybe we can talk about this down the road, I think that comes down to not enough protein, not enough satiating foods. And so therefore you're kind of always hungry. Uh, And then of course, nutrient deficiencies. I also help individuals with autoimmune conditions and we've seen some improvements that way too.
0: That's a great overview. And I think it's really interesting because Growing up, as I always joke as a baby dietitian, you know, we were taught the food guide, we're taught, not taught the food guide, that's a misconception, but we're presented with the concept of the food guide as one way of eating, because it's broken up into food categories and there's a whole history around that, as one way of trying to get the vitamins and minerals we need. But like anything, to your point, it's not a one size fits all eating pattern. And without getting bogged down with judgment, most of the calories come from carbohydrate, right? So it's somewhere in the, you know, at least 45 to 55 grams per day. And so that might not work for everybody. So there is room to pull back on certain foods that might contribute to somebody's poor blood sugar. So I really like that you've kind of emphasized that it's individualization is key. So you're saying like the food guide doesn't necessarily apply to anybody. Can you give an example?
1: Yeah. So, well, let me let me kind of tell you how maybe I got into where I am now. So I did my undergrad at Western here in Ontario, and that was very much similar to what you were saying, right? Here's the food guide. Here is what we know. I would say it was presented as the gold standard, but that's also perhaps how I took it as a student learning in school and being like, oh, look what I know, <laughs> And so it was a lot about this is what we know, this is best, and a lot of critiquing of other diets. Mm -hmm. So uh, perhaps that's where this concept of fad diets really comes in. And like, I'll give you examples, the South Beach diet, the zone diet, which really are just lower carb ways of eating. I think 30 or 40% of their total energy coming from carbohydrates, people seeing success on that and us calling it fad. Well, some people had success. Some people didn't possibly now in in retrospect, it could have been that those people had higher insulin resistance, maybe 30 to 40% of their carbs was still too high to see the results they were looking for, but those worked for certain people. And so why are we saying that that shouldn't have worked? I did my master's at Guelph. First in program and process evaluation and screening tools, and then did my internship at Mount Sinai Hospital in Toronto. And right out of, I mean, internship first of all was a whirlwind. You're working full hours and then doing the schoolwork and doing all the assignments and and everything. So you're putting in as much as your brain can handle, but perhaps not necessarily able to dig into the literature. I mean, as much as I would have liked, where. Reading the articles that our preceptors gave us. So we're assuming that our preceptors also know all of the other literature that's out there. And I don't mean that comment in any judgment whatsoever, right? Mm-hmm. Because there's so much literature coming out every day. And so take the information the preceptor has taught you. You're presenting the pre- presentations the preceptor has given you to present in as best possible way as perhaps a copycat way as possible until you're actually in your own job and then have maybe a few more minutes to start looking into the literature a little bit more. And so that's where I found myself After internship, I was in cardiac rehab and I'm really happy to have gotten a job right out of internship and working with these amazing patients who are so motivated because they've just had a heart attack. They've almost died and they're terrified of food because now we've told them, okay, you ate too much saturated fat or this or this or this caused your heart attack when we don't necessarily know all the mechanisms. I mean, I had a patient who was in his 30s who had a heart attack and he wouldn't touch fat. He didn't know what to eat. He was almost starving himself because he was so scared. And at that point I was using the food guide. I was doing the, I guess, cardiac diet. So low saturated fat, low fat, but mostly the food guide. And the reality was I wasn't helping anybody. At the same time, I was also running a Cardiovascular prevention clinic. So, people with metabolic syndrome, prediabetes, elevated blood pressure, dyslipidemia. And I mean, while I can play around with your triglycerides and I can try to lower your saturated fats by, you know, giving specific fibers or the different supplements you can give and reducing the saturated fat, my patients were hungry. They're all hungry. And so, they would only do what we were talking about for a limited time before they would end up binging on carbs again, or going back to processed foods, because what I was asking them to do, which is a low fat. And then if they have high triglycerides, a low carb diet too, because we know that carbohydrates and sugars were elevating the triglycerides. It just wasn't sustainable. And so for the reality, for many of my patients, they just ended up on medications anyway. And so I took away their pizza and I took away their pop. They still ended up on medications. And what was the point? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Wow. Whereas I can count on one hand out of the thousand patients that I saw working in hospital, I think five patients who sustainably lost five pounds, you know, and didn't gain them again in three months when I saw them at follow-up. It didn't work for most patients. And that was really frustrating to me because part of it is why am I wasting my patient's time? Why am I wasting my time when we're not actually making that much of a change? And the patient's just ending up on medications anyway. So is food, that concept of food as a medicine, was it actually the case or not? I wasn't seeing it with my patients who are metabolically sick. And so that really got me to question what I was doing. I almost left the profession. This was right around my first mat leave. And I came across a tweet by another dietitian in the States who was questioning this concept that we shouldn't eat saturated fats and that saturated fats led to heart disease. And I stopped to think about that for a sec. I'm like, well, why is the dietitian sending this? This is, you know, you shouldn't be spreading lies. So it got me thinking and it got me curious. And it really started me down this rabbit hole of research to say, oh my goodness, this isn't black and white. If it's not black and white for saturated fat, what is it also not black and white for? And around that same time, and I don't actually think I told you the story earlier, my husband decided he needed to lose weight. And so he stopped eating carbs for a week, like cut out all bread, rice, pasta, potatoes. And this was. This was 2013. And I was horrified because I was taught we need 130 grams of carbs for the brain every single day. Now, while that might not be inaccurate, what I was missing was the fact that our bodies can make that carbohydrate. And so I was trying to sabotage him that week. I was trying to find ways to hide carbohydrates in his food because I thought he was gonna die. And it sounds so ridiculous now in hindsight, But what ended up happening was he felt better, he had more energy, and he dropped 10 pounds around his waist circumference, which is exactly where he wanted to lose the weight. And I had no answers for that. I was in shock. And I'm like, so then I started looking into research. And my husband had been following different bodybuilding websites, one of which is Lean Gains, and talking about breakfast and do you actually need to eat breakfast and citing research that breakfast maybe isn't the most important meal of the day, the concept that the first meal you eat of the day is probably the most important. And so that got me going into more research. And then I remember sitting there in my office with my supervisor and I was like, I don't know what to tell people anymore. I don't know what to teach people. I'm supposed to be this expert in nutrition and I've only been taught one aspect of it. And there's so much more information out there. And the people that we as dietitians put our noses up to, so whether they're people in gyms or whether they're quote unquote nutritionists, these people knew more about the literature than I did. And I was shocked and embarrassed and I didn't know what to do. And I was really lucky that this was right around my mat leave. So I was able to, during that mat leave, really dive into the literature, but also connect with a number of dietitians who were in the primal or paleo groups. And so that really introduced me to this concept of lower carb, the paleo diet, paleolithic diets, primal diets, lower inflammatory diets, cutting out sugar from the diet. So it's just (laughs) a number of big concepts that were being thrown at me from the literature perspective. So That's really when I started to question everything. And part of questioning it meant doing it myself. And so I started to eat lower carb and feel better as well. And with lower carb, also like real food, increasing food, cooking from scratch, not the paleo bars or the processed paleo or processed low carb or processed keto ways of eating, but actually the whole foods ways of eating. So that was my introduction.
0: (laughs) Oh, that's very comprehensive. <laughs> so I've jotted down a few things that I, I'd like to go back to and maybe people it will resonate with people. Maybe the professionals who listen, they'll maybe get into this or understand this more. But I think the non-professionals will kind of love this journey. So I remember when I was a student, this is going back like 25 years, the zone was just coming out and I was on a chat room because back then we had chat rooms in the library, these kind of groups you'd go into early internet stuff and there was one on nutrition <laughs> yeah. and people were talking about the zone and I was like oh I'm a nutrition student and you know this is a low carb diet and it's unhealthy and you know because you can't cut carbs it's dangerous and of course this model of the new model of the food guide is what we've been using for years called space on your plate right so half your plate of vegetables a quarter carb which could be potatoes or lentils and then a quarter protein. So that's the zone diet. You don't need to buy a book or the South Beach diet. Like one page, that's the, the you <laughs> know just still 280 pages down to that. So I find that hilarious and I found it dangerous. I thought it was dangerous and it was like, you know, rocking my kind of core beliefs which was the food guide because to your point you presume that to be what the gold standard is because the government's telling you, your preceptors are telling you, et cetera. So you figured the research was done. It wasn't until 10 plus years later that I actually looked at the history of the food guide, which every dietitian should do, or it should be taught in undergrad. And it states right, like in its, whatever it's precepts or whatever, that it's not meant to treat chronic disease, yeah. hello, heart disease and diabetes, nor is it meant to treat nutrition related risk factors cholesterol triglycerides. So I don't know how you expect to be therapeutic when it's not even designed to tackle those issues. That's really interesting. And then the 130 gram carb thing blew me away because I remember in grad school, we talked about this and we're looking at this study where if you eat more carbs, we were producing these more fat-storing enzymes, and when you ate less carbs, you, you burned more fat. And then the TA said, but like, bottom line is you still need 130 grams of carb a day to fuel the brain and all this kind of thing but then the institute of medicine which is now the national academy of sciences which sets the standards right the dietary reference mm-hmm. intakes says the amount of carbohydrate needed to sustain life is zero right because you said earlier we can produce carbs from fat and protein yeah. provided we have enough protein fat and calories so do you have to go that low of course not but it just underscores this. Not doubt, but it underscores the fact that this rigidity that we've always had has never been substantiated to the point where it should prevent us from exploring different options out there, which we're left as clinicians to do on our own. One question I have is, how did you try to hide carbs in your husband's food? (laughs) How does I, that happen? Like, what does it look like? You're sneaking you know, in I <laughs> breadcrumbs into the meatballs, or
1: I, uh, you know what? Probably, I don't even remember now. It's like okay. seven years back, but this the emotions of like, how can I like what was he eating? How could I put it in? Whether it's like maybe bulgur and more like in in salad versus like tabbouleh or something. Or like, it didn't work. But I remembered like, just like this panic feeling of it. (laughs) But to your point, I'm pretty sure that the guidelines that you just mentioned, I'm pretty sure they came out in 2005 with the international bodies coming out and actually saying the amount we actually need is zero. Now, and I think the, the reason that we haven't moved on that is because there are no studies to say what is best, and I think the reason for that is everything is individual. And so, if we go back to our macronutrient ranges, right, the ones mm-hmm. that we've been taught that 45 to 65 becomes what we stick to because perhaps there's more evidence around it or because we're told that's safe. Whereas, again, we don't know that, and when somebody is no longer quote unquote, healthy, and they're metabolically dysregulated, why wouldn't we just follow their labs, right? So if we know that their blood sugars go up because they're eating 200 grams of carbs per day, well, why don't we test their blood sugars at 150 or 100 or 90? Is that still too high? Well, then let's go lower. And then on top of that, like, what does the patient want? I think is the other question that so often we forget. If a patient comes in and their blood sugars are high, but they're not interested in changing their diet, then you know what, I'm so glad we have medications that can help them manage their disease while they're living the life they want to live. I have a number of patients who come in and they say, I do not want to live with this disease how can I do it in such a way where I do not need to take medication or I don't want these side effects or whatever that looks like. So then we look at different options and it might be lower carb. It might be a ketogenic diet. Again, if appropriate, it might be throwing in time-restricted eating. There's now a lot of evidence for even the low energy, higher protein diets. And we're seeing diabetes remission coming with any of those Different dietary approaches. And we really have to understand that diabetes remission is a real thing. And it's a fantastic thing. So for those patients, you have to do something that's a bit more outside of mainstream if you're going to see those results.
0: Yeah, and this is really, I think to your point, like there was the Rob Wolfs and the Paleo diets. I mean, Lauren Cordain did it way back when, but I think Rob Wolf kind of popularized it. But now there's so many medical professionals like doctors let's let's face it who are embracing this who are sick and tired of like amputations because of poor diabetes control Mm -hmm. or they've just gone back to, quote, school and dug into the biochemistry because all of our professions are so much socialized to work within a medical model, for better or for worse, as medical procedures and or medications. And so they kind of – and they're busy. Like, doctors aren't scientists. They're not paid to read the research. They're paid to see patients, like all of us. So now that they're kind of running with it, and if they bring credibility to it, that's just a fact of life, I would say work with that rather than be – upset that dietitians didn't take the lead, but you know, there's mm-hmm. the Tim Noakes case and all that kind of stuff. So it's being challenged. So it's really, really picking up speed, which is great. Like nobody can say it anymore, right? You can't say it's a fad diet. I'd have to go back and do my homework, but I think the acceptable ranges of macronutrients, protein, fat, and carbs largely probably came from, this is a pattern of eating that we're eating based on the foods that we have available in the food supply. Like we had mm-hmm. an agricultural based system with fruits, vegetables, grains, animal products. And I think these were kind of reasonable ranges that a person would could eat eating a so-called balanced diet. But yeah, is it based on evidence? It, it's not. So I just wanted to kind of go back to one point, which I think people will find interesting. So you're leading up to your mat leave and you, when you say you spoke to your supervisor, is this at work like a manager of some kind?
1: At the hospital, yeah. You he just, happened you to also... He was the the manager of the cardiac rehab I was working with. And he also happened to be a naturopathic doctor outside of work. And so we had some really interesting conversations.
0: (laughs) And so you really were at your wit's end.
1: I was. I was terrified. I was terrified because I didn't know. Like, we were supposed to teach industrial seed oils, low to moderate protein, lots of carbs, no fat, the food's not satisfying, you know, and even with carbs are supposed to limit carbohydrates. But when you tell people to eat lean chicken, like lean protein and vegetables, guess what? You're hungry. Mm -hmm. And there's only so much broccoli that you can eat when there's no delicious fat on there. Mm -hmm. And I think we've seen this in the literature, right? People go low calorie because that's what we told calories in versus calories out, eat less, move more, your body's going to be better for it. And we know that metabolically, that's just not the case. When you don't eat enough, your body's going to drop its metabolism. You're going to feel lethargic. You're not going to feel well. And you're going to crave foods all the time because you're hungry. And that's exactly what we see. Whereas if we lower the carbs, yes, but increase the fat and the protein and increase that satiety, your body balances out better. You feel full, And also we're dropping the insulin at the same time. So you're not having those crazy cravings and the blood sugar roller coasters and people are feeling good and they're feeling satisfied and they can actually go, in between meals without eating, possibly even longer. Like this concept of never thinking about the next meal was so foreign to me. Like I was eating, you know, your three meals with three snacks. I'd have tons of food with me all day because there was a fear that I wouldn't have food with me. And then yeah. I would go hungry and then you know, I wouldn't be able to either regulate my blood sugars or I would not be able to think or something. But you know, our how did our ancestors doing it when well, they were hunter-gatherers? They would eat well they would have a big meal and then they would go for their next hunt and in between that they went long periods of time without eating or you know at least a couple of hours <laughs> and you know what we're starting to see in the literature now is that possibly for anything i say can't apply to everybody but what we're seeing in the literature is that it possibly eating every 2 hours is not good at least three meals a day is better. And possibly there's some research to suggest that even two meals a day is fine. Again, does that apply to everybody? No. Is this medical advice? No. But there's so many options out there and no one size fits all. So the question then is, What is the patient's goal? What are they hoping to achieve and how do they feel doing that? So for example, I have a lot of food intolerances and what I found was that longer fasts or a shorter eating window of eight hours, I actually did far better with that longer 16 hour fast with my meals and actually even allowed me to eat a bit more of the foods that I know I'm less tolerant to. That's me. That's my experience. Some people are not able to go 16 hours without eating, and that's okay. Other people find they would rather skip breakfast, skip lunch, eat in a four-hour eating window at the end of the day. And so we kind of work with that. And again, I will say with somebody who does that 20 and four time-restricted eating Approach that I would caution you against just that seven days a week because you can end up in a situation where you're not eating enough regularly, and over time that can reduce metabolism if you're doing time restricted eating and inadequate calories. That can be the case for any time restricted eating approach, but you know, we have to work with what our patients are doing, we have to work with our patients' schedules. Most of my patients right now are the military. A lot of times they have no say over their schedules. They're doing either days or nights. They may, if they're on deployment or if they're doing field exercises, or they might not have say over their food. And so we're working within those parameters as well. So if a patient wants to do time-restricted eating, how can you do that safely? If they're looking at bringing down their blood sugars, what choices can we make within where they're at?
0: Yeah. And so the important thing for people to realize, and I'm not being glib, is that if someone's really got a lot of medical issues, that's a whole different story. But we're just talking like conceptually here that no one's going to die. Like You're not going to die if you skip breakfast. You're not going to die if you eat breakfast and you don't eat lunch until three. If you're not hungry, no one says you have to eat. What's universally pretty much understood is that when we go for longer periods of eating and for me that means at least four to five hours if someone's hungry by all means eat but we know when we go for these states of fasting and that really just means between eating it could be four or five six hours a bunch we can't get into it but a bunch of amazing metabolic responses happen right cholesterol drops blood pressure drops as you said insulin drops blood sugar drops there's a lot of autophagy so the cells get busy cleaning out debris and doing housekeeping because there's not energy diverted to metabolizing food. There's a lot of really great stuff that happens. So the idea is like, even if people are, can't control their food, if these people in the military have food served to them, there's going to be huge benefits and the literature is out there for anyone who wants to look for it for just going longer without eating instead of constantly grazing yeah no it's it's interesting i've asked people lots of times about hunger and they've looked at me very perplexed i'm like well hunger like do you know what it means to be hungry (laughs) not to laugh and they'll say no right? Because they're just so used to like responding to appetite or eating, they, they don't even know that kind of natural ebb and flow where they eat, they're satiated. Sometime later, four or five hours, the hormones do their thing. And then suddenly they start getting a little hunger cue and their stomach's grumbling. They, a lot of yeah. people don't know that, which is really, really fascinating. So I'm curious to know, so you're doing a private practice then? You're not in I the do, hospital? Yes. Yeah. So it's a whole- Not
1: new, anymore, no.
0: So it's a completely different- world when you have the freedom to apply current knowledge and literature and, and that kind of stuff because hospitals I still work in a hospital you're the food they get's the food they get you cannot even play with these things to get better control but in outpatient setting it's really you have so many tools it, it makes
1: there's a lot more freedom for sure when I was in a hospital I mean I was working you have to bring the whole team up to speed and also get permission, right? And so in 2013, 2014, before and after my maternity leave, when I'd really come across a lot of these articles, I presented it to the dietitians and there was a mixed, mixed acceptance. And so like this concept of going lower carb. Some people were interested and some some people were not. I remember when one comment was, I like my pasta. And I was like, well, that's nice, but that's not an evidence-based response Mm -hmm. for the patients who are struggling with metabolic syndrome or diabetes or whatever. That's a personal response. So that one was a bit tough. I did have a doctor who really believed in me and she was willing to, in my cardiovascular prevention clinic, she was willing to allow me to moderate- go low carbs. So I think we kind of agreed to limit it to about 80 grams of carbs, no lower, and then increase the fat moderately as well. So she was willing to start seeing results or to start trialing that with patients to see what results we got. But then for a number of reasons, including baby being in daycare and huge commutes from Toronto to Brampton and all sorts of things, I ended up resigning anyway and starting private practice. So I, I don't know where that would have gone. I think because it was a smaller clinic, it might've actually gone somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I think we would have seen some interesting results. I haven't followed up with the dietitian team there to see where, where things are at. But I think it's also population specific, right? So, are you going to tell the whole hospital that they should go low carb? No, absolutely not. That's not evidence based. And, you know, there are different groups. So, whether it's pediatrics, whether it's obstetrics, whether it's general medicine, whether it's whatever, patients are going to have certain eating patterns anyway, or renal health. They all have their own things to consider. I just hope that dietitians will be open-minded to consider the new evidence. The wonderful thing about all of this is it's no longer a question as to whether or not this is a fad dietary approach or not. Diabetes Canada has come out with their position statement. They have, I guess, summarized the concerns very, very well because there are concerns about going lower carb, especially ketogenic. It's not appropriate for everybody, but they have come out to say, okay, these are the concerns. These are the patients we need to be careful with but this is a viable option and it is an emerging field and we need to be aware that things are going to change as we get more research coming out we're going to know better who it applies to and who it does not but the wonderful thing is they've finally followed suit with the American Diabetes Association with the UK Diabetes Association Australia to come out and say this is a viable option a there are huge medication interactions that can happen when patients are not properly monitored. So that means that health professionals have to be monitoring these patients. And what that also means is that us as health professionals have to be open and listen to the patients when they come in and say, hey, I started this diet, or I'm trying to do X, whether it's lose weight, whether it's lower blood sugars or improve their cholesterol, we can't just dismiss them and say, hey, oh, that's a fad diet. Don't do that. We should actually follow that up and say, hey, it sounds like you're trying to make changes to to get to a goal. What is your goal? How can we work there with you in an evidence-based manner that's going to be, A, safe and be sustainable for you? And the great thing now is that Diabetes Canada has come and said that this is an option and we need to medically manage it and monitor it and also Everyone needs to work together. So what that means as an interdisciplinary piece is that doctors and pharmacists and dieticians and nurses now have an even better reason to come together and work and perhaps outside of a hospital because at least in the hospital, you have that opportunity as already. In private practice, it's a little bit harder. I'm actually out there reaching the doctors and contacting them. And I'm actually telling patients, I'm sorry, I can't actually monitor you on this way of eating until a doctor is on board or until your health professional is on board because of the medication safety risk. It's not an excuse to say, don't do it. It's a more of a, okay, let's team up together and see how we can help that patient reach their goals.
0: Yeah. So you raise a bunch of interesting points and I'll speak for myself because I'm not going to put words in your mouth. But yeah, that's been my frustration, I think, for years with the profession because I think it's had very much a very paternalistic approach. So it's like they have the food guide and they want to decide for the patient. Maybe it's a lack of comfort on their own part for not knowing what the different maybe dietary strategies are out there. But to say like, no, I'm not going to offer this to my patient or tell them to dismiss it because it's a fad, to your point, we should be working with the patients in a safe way that's evidence-informed as opposed to telling them no. The other thing that's interesting, I don't don't know if it's going to work anymore. It's a fine line when we talk about disordered eating. So when you look at the diabetes diet at my hospital, it's basically the regular diet, except they get sugar-free yogurt sugar-free chocolate pudding. And I think whatever comes, some kind of sweetener on the tray instead of sugar Mm -hmm. for the oatmeal. And then all of those diabetes cookbooks, the idea is we don't want people to feel like they're different. So they go to these f- gatherings and they're cooking for their family. So we want them to eat the same way so they don't feel alienated. So how can we, to use a common phrase, how do we hack the muffin recipe? Well, <laughs> in the past, it was like, oh, it's all about low fat. So we'll replace the oil with applesauce or we use some kind of sweetener. So there's like five less grams of carbon chocolate cake, but they still take their insulin. Like, To me, to me, it's just, I I never went back to school to be a dietitian. So I think I kind of came at this in a way that's a little bit dispassionate. Like I just look at things and say, well, that doesn't make sense. Like I don't kind of tie in the emotional part of the psychological part, which is probably something I need to work on. Cause to me, it's very black and white. That's my personality. It's like, okay, I have diabetes, it's black and white. There's no question. I'm not eating pizza. I'm Mm -hmm. not eating things because my goal would be very specific. So it's just, it was always bonkers to me to look at these diabetes cookbooks and it's like, you know, desserts, here's your cakes and your puddings. And we're like, we reduce the sugar by half by adding some sweetener or whatever. But it's interesting now that Diabetes Canada has finally, like, they, they can't ignore it. And so the other thing I think people need to clarify, and you know this, Is that when we say low carb, there's a range, right? So you know, there's ketogenic, which is five percent of your calories from carb, which is super low, maybe twenty grams a day. But you can get twenty percent, thirty percent, forty percent. Like there's a huge range within that, and it's not severe. Like eating more non-starchy vegetables, like broccoli and eggplant, and I don't know whatever else is out there, (laughs) asparagus instead of you know eating more rice, like cut down on the rice, like yeah. that's low carb. Like if you did a lot of these little kind of tweaks, you could cut out a ton without even considering it a radical diet because it just, it looks the same. It's just the proportionate of different things has been modified a bit. So people need to understand low carb does not just mean meat and butter. You know, it's not the, the Atkins diet or the Scarsdale diet.
1: And let's, let's go even further into that range. So in terms of grams, Feynman et all. And I always forget if it's 2013 or 2015, but we can always link the article. It's a fantastic article. It goes through actual, like they defined the different ranges. And I think they're the first article that actually did to kind of help people understand. So ketogenic diet is defined as under 5% of total caloric intake from carbs, but that's a range, theoretically, zero to 50 grams of carbs per day. I say theoretically, cause I think under 20, you're getting closer to, uh, Carnivore diet, and perhaps that's a conversation for later or another day, but just for ketogenic, between 20 and 50. Then you get into what's called low carb, and low carb is defined as between 50 to 130 grams of carbs per day. So that is a large range right there as low carb. And I think the difference being that you're eating a little bit more carbs and it kicks you out of ketosis, so at that 50 gram mark ish but all the way up to 130 grams of carbs. Guess what? That's where we've been telling people to go or we were supposed to be telling people to go anyway. So theoretically, dietitians have been teaching low carb ways of eating for the last however many years. The difference being we don't let them eat fat and then they're hungry. And so then they end up probably eating more carbs because they're not satisfied. And then there's another level called moderate carbohydrate restriction which is between 130 to 220 i believe and that's up to i guess 40 45% of your total energy coming from carbohydrates and then above that would be high carbohydrate which is what the food guide would fall under and so there's a huge range and so like we can talk about some of the research work i did as well with the needs assessment for dietitians but I was looking at dietitians' perspectives of carbohydrate-reduced diets and barriers to using them. And the reality was that everybody, or I shouldn't say everybody, but a lot of the commentary was directed right to keto, to ketogenic diets. And it's like, okay, but we're talking about all carbohydrate-restricted approaches, not just a ketogenic diet, and so I think when dietitians hear low carb, they automatically think ketogenic mm-hmm. without realizing guess what you've been doing a low like you've been prescribing lower carb ways of eating, probably your entire dietitian career. you just didn't realize the definition of it.
0: Yeah, it is really kind of I think black and white, and maybe it should be carbohydrate controlled because you know restricted is just. Conjures up all these things of like steak and butter and bacon fat bombs yeah. and whatever. So, and when you say they've been teaching it for years, you mean some of the things that they've been advising clients to do, like swaps and stuff? Or? Yeah.
1: Well, I think so. When you have a patient come and they eat mostly process foods, and you're switching them to whole foods you're reducing their carbohydrates, right? right. right? And so if you're taking somebody who's eating 200 grams of carbs per day and you're bringing them down to 150 grams of carbs per day, you're reducing their carbohydrates, right? And so now there's, there's a whole different side to the story, which is quality, right? So if you're switching the processed foods for the less processed foods, the whole foods, that's also gonna see a big difference in how our body digests it and so our metabolism. But inevitably when you're eating whole foods, you tend to eat less of it versus the ultra-processed, hyper-palatable foods that we can eat forever and never feel full, never feel satiated, and only crave more. So,
0: Yeah, and I think the response would be something like, well, that's not low-carb. That's just you're improving diet quality, but they're one and the same. Like They can be looked at. There's two sides to every coin or whatever Mm -hmm. the expression is. So that's interesting. I didn't think of it specifically in those terms, but that's a, a, a more palatable way for people to... To accept it. So in this needs assessment, besides kind of just seeing low carb as keto, what did you find?
1: So the key things we were looking at are barriers to implementation or approaches to it. And the reality is we weren't trained around understanding the physiology. And perhaps that was because we didn't have the science or it was just coming out. And so we know that Unfortunately, education tends to be 10, 20 years behind what the evidence is already showing, if not more. And so most of the dieticians talked about how they weren't trained And then once you're a dietitian already, there isn't time given to you to train, right? Or to research. And so you have to do that in your own time. And then if you're not working in a hospital or an institution of some kind, you probably don't have access to a library that's going to give you free articles. And so then every article is going to cost you $30 to read and access unless you find ways of getting it for free, which is very difficult to do. And so when you're trying to follow an emerging area of food first approaches. It's incredibly expensive, incredibly time consuming. So that was the biggest piece. And also we, we just didn't understand perhaps biochemistry enough in school. Now I can only speak for myself. I probably didn't learn it enough as uh, I should, or I forgot it promptly after um, doing the exam but there's the inadequate training. And and to that point, I'll also speak specifically to something like ketones, right? In school for me, I was taught ketones are bad. Ketones mean diabetic ketoacidosis. There wasn't this concept that the concentration of ketones in your blood can fluctuate the exact same way blood sugars can. And so where... We don't say blood sugars are bad, but we say that a high concentration of blood sugars is not a good thing. Same thing with ketones, right? Or even understanding the positive properties, the healing properties of the ketones, the ketones as energy, ketones as fueling the brain. All of that stuff was not talked about in any of my classes. Again, I don't know if that was a research, like the research wasn't necessarily out there or like the professors weren't aware of it. So that's one area. So training, lack of support. So you have to have dietitian mentors to teach you how to do this stuff, right? So whether it's from the university, whether it's preceptors, whether it's other dietitians in the community doing this, but you also have to be able to work with a team who knows what they're doing. And we cannot manage medications, of course, apart from some of the diabetes medications, if you have your CDE designation. So I team up with doctors. Now, if you're working with a doctor who is highly against a ketogenic diet, then you're not going to be able to prescribe that. So that's a huge barrier. And then of course, being able to monitor patients might mean ordering blood work and dietitians can't order blood work. So then again, that brings back to teaming up with a doctor who's willing to look at all of this stuff to make sure that the patients are appropriately monitored. Are there electrolytes being monitored if that's a problem for the patient? And then I think the biggest or a big barrier, and I will say that this was before the Diabetes Canada position paper came out. So positions held might be different now that Diabetes Canada has come out to say this is a viable option and dietitians have to look at this seriously and consider it and be willing to help patients who want to be on it. But belief systems and reservations were huge. So I got a lot of comments such as I'm not convinced. I don't agree with this. This conflicts with a previous belief or a belief that I hold dear. I avoid restrictions or I avoid whatever it is. And so with those comments automatically dismissing the fact that patients can come and, you know, achieve diabetes remission potentially is huge.
0: I'm so we have
1: to, <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry. I don't want to make you angry. It's, but just, the, this has the the been, the, been
0: the reality for, and to me, that's that paternalistic thing. It's not for us to decide what a patient should or shouldn't do. I don't mean being reckless, but you know what I mean. Anyway. Totally. Go totally. on. <laughs>
1: Well, these are these are the biggest barriers to implementation. And so I've teamed up with an organization called the Institute for Personalized Therapeutic Nutrition, the IPTN. And the mandate of this organization is to help train clinicians, all clinicians, on food-first approaches for the patient. And before I... Everybody jumps on me and gets upset that everyone 's learning how to do a dietitian 's job. Let me explain a little bit more. So when we all learned about diabetes in school, whether you were a nurse, a dietitian, a doctor, a pharmacist, or any other allied health member, you would have learned the basics of diabetes, what happens physiologically, certain medications that you would be put on, how the medications interact. you would understand the disease. Mm-hmm. We didn't learn that with ketogenic and low-carbohydrate ways of eating. Doctors and pharmacists and nurses and dietitians do not understand the physiological changes that take place with these diets. And so they all need to be taught what happens so that they can understand why a patient who was at risk of gout had a flare-up in their first two weeks of having a ketogenic diet, why a patient who perhaps is a bit more sensitive with their hydration, ended up with kidney stones because they got dehydrated on a ketogenic diet. Or why, I mean, even just basic, why patients who who had diabetes were on... Blood sugar lowering medications or on antihypertensives ended up in hospital with either low blood pressure or low blood sugars because they were starting this way of eating. It's not that the diet did it to them, it's that we didn't monitor them properly or warn them properly to say, Guess what? You'll be over medicated if you do this dietary approach and continue your medications. So, without the entire team understanding what happens when you go on a lower carbohydrate or a ketogenic way of eating, there's going to be problems and a patient is put at health risk. And so the IPTN wants to teach all clinicians, what happens with these food-first approaches, because guess what? We have to work together. I need the doctor and the pharmacist and the nurse to help if a patient needs to lower their medication. The doctor might need a dietitian to say, hey, this patient wants to follow a low carbohydrate or a ketogenic diet. Please help them find something that's sustainable I don't do that, right? And so it's not that we're teaching doctors to do dietitians' jobs. If doctors are doing dietitians' jobs, it's probably right now because they can't find a dietitian to do the dietitian's job, which is really frustrating. And what we've done as dietitians is open up the door for people who perhaps are less educated, be it nutritionists, be it coaches or whatever, to come in and fill that role because we haven't stepped up to the plate. So the job is out there. The health professionals are out there to say, dietitians, we need your help. We just have to step up and do that. And so working with the IPTN, I'm hoping that we can provide the resources to help teach health professionals, but also then be able to bring interdisciplinary groups together to work together to help the patients achieve their health goals.
0: I agree with you 100%. And the other way I would kind of frame this is, you know, if you work in a hospital long enough and you work with a patient population long enough, you're not a doctor, but you can read a chart and you can know exactly what's going on. You can look at the medications, you yeah. know the dosing, you know the side effects, you know exactly what's going on. But you'll never be a pharmacist, you'll never be a doctor, even though you've got like, a huge understanding of the clinical picture. And vice versa, they don't want to be dietitians; they don't want to do me- medical nutrition therapy. Yeah. Everyone likes to throw around their own nutrition advice, right? Like, you should talk to the patient because they shouldn't be doing this. Like, okay, I'm not telling you how to be whatever you are, uh, doctor, nurse, or pharmacist, but everyone feels they can tell a dietitian how to do their job because everybody eats and everybody has an opinion on eating. But understanding it will just allow them also to understand where we can make an impact and when it is appropriate to refer. But the bottom line is, besides someone saying, well, they got applesauce and they shouldn't have applesauce, they don't want to get involved. No one's going to be replacing dietitians, yeah. at least not in a, an organized uh, medical system, whether that's outpatient or some kind of clinic or, or a hospital. So I think it just is going to highlight the role of everybody. So I think it's actually a good thing. So is that one of the I don't want to take too much of your time. I've been talking for a long time and I could talk forever. <laughs> unless there's some, any burning stuff you'd like people to take away. So maybe I'll just ask you, is there any kind of lasting things that you want people to understand? Like
1: I think the take home points are the following, right? So one, where do you start with a patient? Well you start with where they're at and what are their health goals? And from there, what is sustainable for them? And so for one person, a ketogenic diet might be sustainable. And for many others, it might not be. Or diet is fluid. And so where we start today on whatever dietary approach, that might change tomorrow, right? So sometimes we feel that, oh my goodness, if a patient is eating X amount of carbs today, that can never change. Well, that's silly. And I think I saw it very clearly with with the COVID pandemic. So I had a number of patients who were on a ketogenic diet. Some of them did really well and loved it and continued on their ketogenic diet through the pandemic. And a number of them didn't because stress and sleep play a huge role in cravings. And So, they needed to liberalize their diet. And so, we liberalized it to either a low carb or a moderate carbohydrate way of eating. And actually, for a while, I stopped teaching diets and I started working on just stress reduction because until we manage our stress, how can you even talk about cravings and and food, right? So, finding out where the patient is at, starting something today and adjusting as necessary becomes really, really important. And then, working with an interdisciplinary team for the patients. Goals, right? So you're right. A health professional might come in and say, Oh my goodness, you need to talk to this person because they need to change their diet. Well, that's not appropriate on so many levels. But you know what? What if you did see that patient and that patient said, You know what? I just, I'm not ready. That's okay. This is where, you know, I'm so happy. And I think I said this already, but I'm so happy that we have medicine where, you know, drugs can help if. There are changes that a patient theoretically needs to make, but can't, or the timing is not right, or their family member is not on board. I have seen so many patients succeed and I've seen so many patients fail on low carb and a huge piece of it is their support group is their partner or their family on board if they're not it's very likely they won't last very long if they're on board fantastic and you know if a couple of people are doing it together then we work on a sustainable approach for the two partners so maybe one wants to do ketogenic diet one prefers a low carb way of eating perfect we come up with a lower carb eating plan and then you know the one patient just doesn't eat the carbohydrates as part of that and at the very beginning of all of this whole foods is the starting point, right? There are so many diets that are out there in the literature that can help a patient. So whether it's the DASH diet, the Mediterranean diet, whether it's low carb, whether it's a vegan dietary approach, whether it's a ketogenic diet, these are not all mutually exclusive diets. They can be a combination. And so for us to all be in our little tiny groups, you know, picketing is silly. You can have a ketogenic vegan diet. You can have, obviously you can't have an omnivore vegan diet, but there's such a range. And so finding out instead of saying, well, this is best or this is best, just ask what the patient wants. Where do they fit in? What foods do they choose to eat or not choose to eat? If I have a person come to me and they choose not to eat meat, it would be inappropriate for me to recommend it. Unless they need omega-3s, unless there are certain nutrients that they absolutely need, that it would be easier to get. And maybe we have a conversation of what are the options, mm-hmm. but that's a very carefully worded conversation because- it's inappropriate for me to tell somebody that they need to eat meat when they believe they shouldn't. And at the end of the day, all of these tools, all of these approaches, they're all tools in the toolbox and not all of them work for everybody. So, you know, if somebody's coming in with a binge eating disorder, for example, it's not okay for them to go on time restricted eating because it's possible that their cravings will be much worse With that longer period of fasting. Whereas somebody who doesn't have a binge eating disorder might find that eating, you know, fasting for 16 hours and eating in that eight hour window is wonderful, really easy. They can have two large meals, maybe with a snack in between, and that works great for them. Whereas other people, you know what, 12 hours is good. You know, you have your breakfast, your lunch, your dinner. And then you're good. It's just, it's so gray there, or colorful, I guess you could say, too. Letting patients pick where they wanna go and just being fluid with it and focusing on their health goals. And again, for me, I work with patients who are metabolically ill. And so lowering their carbs is going to make a difference for them. And so we find something that's sustainable for them that might not fit for all populations. Of course, you know, I'm not talking about eating disorders with this sort of thing, because there's so much more mentally going on in the background. So that was a long winded (laughs) last few things.
0: (laughs) Well, it's very comprehensive, a great summary. I think a take home for me, which you've already highlighted, is that when we talk about carb controlled diets, because we don't like the word restriction, there is a huge range to work with. And for medically compromised patients, I think it's universally accepted that some degree of carbohydrate control is going to benefit them. So there's a lot of ways to come at that. Any way people can get in touch with you, or anything you like to share or promote, websites, social?
1: Yeah, sure. So um, you can find me at eatdifferentrd.com. So that's my website. I'm on Facebook under Eliana Witchell, eatdifferentrd on Instagram. If I, I, I have been posting less, I must admit, I have to be more on social media. The pandemic's been busy. So that's the, that's the biggest place you can find me at the Institute for Personalized Therapeutic Nutrition. And the website for that is therapeuticnutrition.org. And that is a website for all health professionals to come together, you can become a member, it's free. And there's a lot of great resources, a lot of webinars that are there. People can see whether it's even something, let's say there's a doctor out there, they don't know how to deprescribe medication. Which happens when you know patients don't need their medications anymore? There's a webinar on that. There's a webinar that myself and Michelle Shepard did recently, really on. It's called carbohydrate restricted diets. <laughs> in your case, controlled diet. That's diets. what it is. <laughs> um, but it's it really goes through the background um, literature. It talks about diabetes remission and how this is possible. It talks about what different levels of carbohydrate restriction look like. It talks about the medication safety piece. It talks about that interdisciplinary collaboration that's necessary. So it's a very comprehensive webinar. It is two hours. I think questions went on for almost like at least 30 minutes, if not an hour. It was, yeah, that's a great place to start if you need more information. Reach out to me, though. Um, you can email me at eliana at eatdifferentrd.com. I will also say, because this will probably this might be out by the time that the podcast comes out, I am starting to farm, and I'm starting to do pastured farming. And I want to see what it entails, and I want to make it transparent. So my husband and I have started farming, and we're hoping to kind of go live in the next week or two really because we want to question there's important nutrients in animal products and we know that the current system of farming and the way animals are treated is not acceptable and the question is how can we find a way of farming where it's more accessible not as expensive hopefully especially if more people do it but beyond you know, raising animals in a feedlot and having healthy animals and increasing their nutrient density, but also using their animalness in their lives. So letting chickens and turkeys actually graze because they eat grass, but then also eat caterpillars and bugs and, and everything that they would find in the grass and forage. And it's been an a really cool journey, and that's coming out soon. So I'm just putting that out there because it might come out, and I don't want people to think I didn't mention it. When
0: uh, so out. when you say coming out, you're going to chronicle it in some manner video or blog or?
1: It's going to be coming out on, uh, we're, we're putting together a Facebook group and it's going to be on YouTube. And mm-hmm. we're literally like, we're trying to make it as transparent as possible. So we're literally videotaping every time we feed the animals, every time we move the animals, everything that comes up, if an animal got sick or if an animal died for any reason, we're kind of taking, taking everybody with us on this journey of what does it entail to actually raise animals in this fashion.
0: Yeah, no, it's important because we've lost connection with our food. So will there be a link on your website? Because this will be, uh, I think the lingo is it drops. It drops on October 6th. So, but even if there'll be some connection through those media that you... Absolutely. And I with. can
1: I can even um, send the link directly to be with the, the notes for, for the podcast as well. Okay. Totally
0: so that was amazing i liked it i could have talked for another two hours and just commiserate over experiences and life as a dietitian so i know everyone's going to find it interesting especially people who can relate who've kind of walked in our professional shoes so thank you for taking the time and we look forward to this new adventure of yours
1: thank you so much thank you for allowing me this time doug it was a pleasure
0: my pleasure too thanks Hit subscribe and get ready to expand your nutritional world, your perspective, and gain confidence in a way that you didn't know you could. And be sure to check out my website, DougCookRD.com.